netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour. This week on the podcast, we're talking with Andrew Jackson, the production VFX supervisor on the blockbuster film Oppenheimer. The visual effects for Oppenheimer were done at Deneg, but as you'll hear, Christopher Nolan treated the special effects and visual effects pretty much as one. Andrew's a long-time friend of FX Guide. In fact, I used to, to work with him many years ago. The film Oppenheimer is, of course, a huge success and was shot on film, famously 70mm film, and the IMAX film screenings of the completed film have been sellouts wherever they've been shown. But let's now cross to my chat with Andrew Jackson. So, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. Um, happy to be back in Sydney after a seven-year stint in the UK. Yeah, yeah. You've had a very uh, good run there uh, in the UK. But, uh, yes, we're all glad that you're back in Sydney as well. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so when did you first get involved in this uh, latest uh, Oppenheimer project with uh, Christopher Nolan? Well, um, Chris rang me, I think it was um, probably October. Um, in one of which year would that have been 2020, I guess, or 2021, maybe. And um, he he rang me early on, and um, the reason was that he wanted me. He he had this idea for the film that he really wanted to to be um, on all based on practical effects. I mean, I know there's been much sort of talk about that um, since it came out, but. He just felt that it it fitted better with the subject matter, and because he wanted um, me to get involved early and start thinking about how we might approach that and what sort of um, techniques we might use to kind of address all the 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 lines in the script that needed some kind of visual representation. And um, yeah, it turned out that I was the first person who read the script after Emma, his wife and producer, and. Uh, Wow. And that was the reason he he kind of wanted me to get on really early and start thinking about that process. Um, you wouldn't have finished with Tenant until twenty twenty, right? So it must have come on the heels of that. It was yeah, the end of the year that we finished. Right. Tenant. So yeah, and um, he tends to have that sort of time scale, like a couple of years on a project or all up, you know, writing and producing, and then um, a little bit of a space and then head into the next film so um yeah and so we we talked and and talked about the ideas of, around that sort of not wanting to be too literal and just looking for ways of illustrating the ideas and and the sort of thoughts in in Oppenheim's head rather than literally trying to reproduce exactly what a new the nucleus of an atom might do um, it was much more of an artistic representation, if you like. And so that yeah. was the beginning. So, so you went into an experimentation period. But let me just jump to the end for a second and say, how many kind of visual effect shots were there in the film? Uh, or how many did you supervise, I guess? Well, the um, as with all of Chris's films, he kind of bundles all of the effects together. He treats both special effects and visual effects as one kind of big department and he says, here you go. These are the problems. You guys work out how we're going to do it. And and so I like to talk about all of the effects. And we we shot a ton of stuff that just got cut straight into the film that never 
never went to post at all. And that, and it's still effects. It's still they're all the same things that we did, um, which which got used in post as well. So in that sense, there's probably at least 200 shots that were effect shots that are in the film, but only about half of those actually went into post and got work done on them in post. So it's really not a very large shot count. No, no. I mean, look, the film is terrific. And I want to drill down on those sort of visualizations of the subatomic particles, because that's like some of the most visually interesting stuff. And I found it thematically super interesting as well. But just before we get to that, was there a bunch of shots? I mean, I don't know. Did you have to do any historical sort of removal type work? Or was that was it all just able to there, be done with locations that worked? There were a few, not very many. There's a couple of aerial shots that had some modern traffic signs and um, buildings that had to be removed, but really very little. Um Chris does tend to work really hard at getting everything in camera without having to be dealt with in post. So so only a handful of, of um, sort of period fixes. I guess you would have been really helped by the New Mexico set being clearly a set rather because it was, you know, meant to look like a, a popped up sort yeah. of town rather than, a say, a New York that had to be de-aged, as it were. Yeah, no, and they built. They did a fantastic job on that um, on that set because it worked really from all the angles that they were shooting from. Worked as a complete set, so it didn't really. We didn't do any fix up work there at all. That was that was it as it was shot. So as I said, we'll go to that um, sort of nano kind of imagery stuff in a second. But I'm just curious on the technical pipeline because this stuff was shot clearly historically on uh, IMAX on film. It that's. That's not an easy pipeline technically just to get footage. Like let's say you just had to get a, a shot into post, like on a you know, digital area, you just sort of plug in the file and you're off to the races in Nuke within seconds. I mean, mm-hmm. how complex was the pipeline to get stuff from a camera into a workstation should you needed to have done that? Um, I mean, it's not hugely complex, I suppose, partly because we've done the same process quite a few times on his on his on Chris's films. There, there's always or, or everything I've shot for him on the last three films has been shot on IMAX. Okay. And, um, so we scan either at Photocam or at IMAX in LA. Um, we scan at 8K and we work to 6.5K, um, but we've always got the 8K scans if we need them, um, which actually, interestingly, used to be huge compared to everything else, but the rest of the world's kind of catching up. Or, you know, as I notice it. In London, and it's probably the same here. I haven't been to a television shop, but they're selling 8K TVs now. So, you know, that's, um, little, although to be honest, I think most of those are up-resing like, HD. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the reason I sort of asked that, I guess, is you were shooting uh, presumably most of those sort of miniature or nano, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of the uh, allusion to the subatomic particles. You were shooting that with film. And the reason I asked about the process is because, like, clearly if you're shooting with a digital red or something, you can just stop between takes and see if you got it. But if you're shooting on film, I mean, there's a quite a finite amount of time before you know if that's worked or yeah, were you just so relying on splits or something? The um, the process that that we employed for, for all of that work really was to start with, testing and just capturing it on whatever i've i use um nikon still camera that and i replicate the exactly the 
um, shutter speed and um, lens focus that we would be getting with the IMAX camera. And and even some of the tests we just shoot on iPhones and, and basically testing and testing and testing and filming until we've got something we're very confident that we know is working. And then and then we would bring in the the IMAX camera, but I would also put the same still camera or digital still recorder right next to the IMAX camera. And so I would record simultaneously with the exact same settings that are on the IMAX camera. So we have a really good, rather than using a split, we're actually just recording the same thing from a slightly different angle. And that's that was really the process that we used to know whether we had something good or not was recording kind of simultaneously beside the the um the IMAX. Because obviously with the with a lot of the stuff, I mean it's it's really a, a sort of experimental and the process is not um guaranteed to work exactly the way you want it. So you don't want to be bringing out the IMAX camera too early and and like <laughs> There's a there's a very I mean that's one of the things I actually really enjoy though about shooting on IMAX cameras is that when that thing comes out and you turn it on and you can hear that 70, 65 millimeter film going through the camera, everyone is a hundred percent focused on that moment. Um, unlike digital modern digital cameras where people just turn them on at the beginning of the day and turn them off at the end of the day almost. You know what I mean? It's like a it's a very different brings a sort of level of focus and and attention to the to that moment which is kind of missing i think now in, in a lot of digital filmmaking you know, yeah i think directors just oh just keep rolling go again it's like i don't know it feels like it everyone gets a little bit looser and sloppier and it's not quite the same kind of a attention so for that uh what i'm calling subatomic filming stuff which um i guess you know has as i say like two roles i love the fact that that footage stopped in the film once the bomb had gone off as if his his inner wonder had kind of collapsed on itself in a way that was almost tragic because those footage was so beautiful and so interesting um but just in terms of the footage itself i'm wondering was that stuff shot where there's a presumption that most of the shots with the camera was rolling or did you actually do sort of long exposure because with a film camera you can do that right you can't do it with a digital camera where you could actually just hold it the shutter open for a really long time and then advance one more frame um those um the ones that we're talking about the um the spinning particles we did with um really slow frame rates so that we got long exposures um and we just rolled for um you know quite a few minutes on the rig, which was basically a, a, a setup with beads spinning on on an arc that was, I don't know, about a meter, I guess. Um, not spinning really fast, but quite fast. And and so each bead passing through that arc um, for the, you know, because the, the camera's running really slowly, the exposure itself is really long. So we got long streaks of, of motion blur, essentially. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know this, but there are some guys, I don't know them personally, on the internet <laughs> who challenge themselves to reproduce a bunch of your shots, um, not, the video. not knowing how you did it. And uh, they solved that with digital cameras by having uh, paper clips that were spinning on a drill. So they were reflecting uh, light and 
And yeah. it's, I, I think I, I, I am stunned at how much work these guys put in to replicate your shots, but also kind of totally admire that they managed to pull off anything in their garage. That was uh, yeah. No, I watched it. I was um, I was impressed and a little disappointed that everyone's going to go. Oh, it wasn't that, it wasn't that hard at all, was it? So. <laughs> Um, I, I think we'd agree there's a big difference between saying, can I replicate this shot because you know the shot works and then starting with an empty sort of desk and saying what shots would look good and what can we come up with that might be visually interesting. There's those two completely different problems. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And in, as you said, they, they solved it by making the um, the uh, items spin really fast to yeah. get the long streak but we did it by slowing the camera down and and that way by slowing it down we were able to manipulate the the journey if you like of each of the of the particles more so yeah. we could we could have more interesting path that they traveled on if if i did actually interestingly my very first test on the first day was exactly what he did which was beads on strings on a drill Right, spinning really fast, and I was, but I, I made a little rig that varied the length of the string that they were attached to during the arc. So, in the hope that they would make describe a a wavy line on their arc, because that was right. a lot of the a lot of the effort went into trying to just thinking about that idea of particles and waves combined, mm. because there is that sort of whole debate about what are what are electrons you know and all of those really um sub subatomic particles are they waves or are they particles and they because they beh behave as both and and so that was that was a kind of recurring theme all of the the experimental work that i was doing was trying to find ideas that kind of represented both those particles and waves it's funny that i know that that is what you were doing but of course, in the film, it's not like it's an explicit demonstration of anything. And what I was getting out of it was kind of super string theory, right? Like the, the sort of vibration of strings, mm. um, or obviously the wrong physics, but in the similar kind of uh, sense yeah. of that wonder that you have as how the actual universe works at that level. And that was that was like one of the um, the really interesting things I think about the whole project was that we weren't trying to be really you know specific about yeah. illustrating exactly what's going on because like chris and i talked earlier on it was like well you can't represent an electron because it's spinning at like a billion revolutions per second it's it's minute compared to the space it's it's traveling in it's like microscopic and and um and then at the other end of the scale, there's a sort of infographic where you like really literally just describe exactly what it is and you see the balls of the nu nucleus and the electrons. So we didn't really want any either of those. So it was much more a, a sort of just an artistic inspiration mm. by the ideas. And and also I, I like the idea that he, at the time when he was thinking about all this stuff, there was no visualization, mind you. There probably still isn't for most of that stuff. It's a, it's, so it's very much in 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 the the person's imagination. So so it gave us a lot of freedom and a you know artistic license, if you like. Yeah, as I say, taking nothing away from the guys that did that in their garage, which I think was, as I say, a heroic effort and really fascinating. But I do find that that creative exploration that you guys went on to to 
sort of give us an insight as to what someone would be pondering when contemplating how this might work as opposed to the you know hindsight we have of years of computer graphics sort of explaining stuff and and general public kind of having some idea of what's going on uh to be fascinating and and i've got to ask you like that in that work that you were doing um one of the other things i thought was really fascinating is they uh tried putting some glitter in a fishbowl and it magnified so then they put the fishbowl in water to get out the refractive properties that caused the magnification so they had a round fishbowl in a square tank and they could get swirling particles which i thought was a great solution but you you were actually immersing snorkel lenses in water right yeah we had um we did have to use round tanks though because we had the same <clears throat> same issues if you if you have corners there's just way too much turbulence yep so we had um big round tanks with holes in the side and we we pushed the lens through a hole in the side of the tank with a with a membrane so that it was watertight and well actually the lenses that we had made for the IMAX camera these probe lenses with a with a lens on the end that was actually a changeable lens but that was all watertight the lens itself so we only had to seal onto the main sort of um shaft of the lens of the probe and um and then we we were able to push that through the the hole in the tank and get that sort of sense of um of moving through a galaxy of of stars so there were bigger there were much bigger tanks and and there was quite a process of getting them to move in the right way so it was like very much a case of of getting them spinning get we sort of stirred the tank up and then we had to wait for like 10 15 minutes until it had all settled down and was just moving as one huge mass really slowly with no turbulence and then you could then you could slide in the lens and and get that sense of moving in. Yeah, I of guess course, air bubbles would be a giveaway. Sorry, Sorry? Mike? I was going to say any yeah. air bubbles would be a giveaway. You you needed it to be like yeah. effectively yeah slow mass moving. But can I ask you because Nikon made a lens that would be in contact with the water, though most underwater photography has a housing in front of the lens. Were you using those special Nikon lenses that actually are contacted with the water or? Was Actually, the lens... I'm not sure what the the lenses that were on the front end of the the sort of snorkel style, or it was a were they actually getting wet? Yeah, they were getting wet. Okay, okay I, I think they're the ones they I know. Based yeah, based on Nikon lenses or not? Um, not because sure. it's an unusual thing, but a great thing to be able to remove that extra barrier between end of glass, yeah, barrier that keeps the water out, obviously, which then distorts and does all sorts of things, and mm. and the material beyond. Yeah. Um, and I imagine you're also playing with depth of field a lot, right? To get that kind of dimensionality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we I mean a lot of the um depth of field is really just um trying to get as much as you can usually with because those IMAX cameras are so like the depth field so tiny, we're kind of like fighting that a little bit sometimes. I mean, sometimes it works to your advantage, but if you're trying to sell that you're in space, it's you know, the really super narrow depth of field is not great. But um, but yeah. yeah, we were working really trying to get as much pumping as much light in as as we could often to to try and open the cameras to um, shut the cameras down and open up the depth field. And I guess but, at the yeah. other end of the spectrum, you were actually igniting incredibly hot um, materials, right? Like yeah, that can... that um, 
that was quite a, a win actually that one thermite I think what I was I did a lot you know in the very early days a lot of um you know googling what happens to certain things and I, I sort of hit on this one video of people trying to make fire in a vacuum or finding things that would would burn in a vacuum and um and one of the things was thermite because it was a it's a chemical reaction. It doesn't rely on oxygen. So it's just a mixture of aluminium and iron oxide powders. And when you set fire to it, it burns at over 2000 degrees Celsius. So it's um, incredibly hot and just basically turns into molten iron. And and we we found this stuff and we we sort of made a, a mixture of it in a flower pot on a, on a stand and put a little base under it so didn't fall through the hole in the flower pot. Set it off and filmed it, and it just was amazing. It was like this, it, like when it first ignites, it makes this amazing kind of sh shower of sparks, and and it's incredibly bright, so it illuminates its own kind of effect. And then then it turns into molten iron and starts pouring through the hole in the flat flower pot and dropping onto a onto a base plate and, and splashing the sort of molten metal everywhere exploding kind of particles so we didn't know exactly where or how we were going to use it then or even really right up until the end of the shoot we just knew it was amazing and we were going to we shot in lots of different ways on you know like macro or quite long lenses from above looking into the sort of molten metal and we shot the particles falling and exploding so we we shot a ton of footage of that that material and it did in in fact end up being incredibly useful as an element that we've built into other things but i mean given that it's burning 2000 degrees like you must have had to nd the living daylights out of that sucker or you just have a white frame yeah absolutely yeah it, it was so bright you had to really shut the whole you know everything was like exposed way down just to get any sort of detail at all yeah. That I know that the stuff that was the molten iron as well that was dripping from the bottom was hitting your base plate and causing its own like splashes that were and sparks that were gorgeous. But generally speaking, is that stuff? I know you're getting it in camera, but is the grade of it like these lovely rich um, oranges and yellows? Is that in camera or is that like was it graded in? Because I was just curious. Like, no, they. They were kind of the colours, but when we shut, you know, stopped the camera right down, those were the colours that we were getting. It was very much driven by the the look of the of the photography, that that really deep, warm orange colour. Yeah. yeah, which yeah, it's gorgeous because it. And I, you hinted at it a second ago, right? You have this marvelous duality between: am I looking at something that's subatomic, or am I looking at a burst from the sun which is at a scale of you know earth dimensions mm. right yeah. and and i think that duality is is great because of course it underlines the point of the whole film right which is that you're dealing with these things that work from an, an atomic level to a you know incredible scale of uh destruction mm. yeah that's right and, and all the time while we were shooting everything we was like very much aware that it could work in either either space you know it could you could be looking at something that's um that's a galaxy or or it could be just you know subatomic world 
But you did take a number of these elements into Nuke to composite up for some shots, right? Like, oh, yeah. There's there some... There's some of the shots. There's some one. There's a couple of shots that look like a sort of eyeball that are sort of imploding stars. That was kind of where the, where the idea that they were illustrating in the film. And those ones, I think we took the thermite smoke layer, which is an incredibly rich... Um, like subject already and we kind of wrapped it around in a circle and kind of turned it inside out and 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 then we tracked that into a star field with a moving like use some one of the star field shots that we've done with a moving camera and taking the these sort of very sort of amorphous shapes and then tracking them into a, another shot just sat them in the world in a lot more convincing way and then we used other things for the for the center of that. And so there were shots in the film that that had a lot of um of visual effects or compositing work done to them, even now though they a, weren't based on photography originally. I had a rumor that you did some after effects work and it actually turned out that you couldn't do anything better in nuke, so they just went with the after effects version. Is that right? Is that rumor true? Yeah, I think there's one shot like that, but it's it's just <laughs> I mean, that was the process in post that we had these like hundreds of elements that we'd shot during the whole pre-production and the shoot. And my day was kind of trawling. I should stop just for a moment. Half of the shots that we needed, we knew exactly what they were going to be. They, they were cut into the film. They worked really well. But then there was another sort of handful of things that we didn't quite know how to solve. Um, but we knew we had all this material. We knew that we had collectively decided that the whole film was going to be made out of only this material that we'd shot. There was the sort of creative um, restriction, if you like, that is, is like a creative process that Chris uses a lot. And and I actually completely understood it on this film more than ever before, that that, that process of restricting your, you know, what you have available forces you to come up with ideas and and solutions that you wouldn't otherwise find and and it was actually a really rewarding process so anyway that aside so that was my day i was going through all of these hundreds of elements that we'd shot looking for how we were going to combine them and apply them to the lines in the script that still needed a, a visual idea to go with them and I would do that in After Effects. I'd just be throwing, you know, using the um, the quick times from the dailies, um, telecine, and and sc- usually um, just screening elements over each other. So they're just dozens of layers. And it was one of the... Um, the By screening, ones. you actually mean the, the Adobe effect of screen, yeah. right, as opposed yeah, to sorry, yeah, hard light. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Yeah, just so we don't know what you're talking um, about. Yep. Same as Photoshop and yep. um, just done lots of layers with the you know set to screen. So yep. they, I think they never the the um, math you you would be able to clarify, but they just never reach one. That's the, the yeah they uh, don't they don't max they out go over yeah over one. So it's um, not an additive. Comp. Yeah, yeah, and it you know it's very effective for for things with fire and flame and yeah you, know, you can layer things up and they just look really nice. And so I would do this all day and and until i found things i liked i would show chris and he would 
so you know try them in the film and if they work we go take that and then reproduce it in nuke with the full scanned elements but there was one particular shot which didn't matter how many times we tried to redo it in nuke it never quite got to the same i don't know just never had the feel that he liked so he just said yeah we're going to use this one so they did yeah no one cares yeah. uh, in that sense but yeah. it's just funny uh in another and I guess for me, I I, um, I was having this discussion the other day about the blast in particular, which I know was in part um, a composited element. But for me, one of the things that you weren't doing as filmmakers was glorifying with kind of pyro porn, if I could use that expression. You weren't like glorifying what is, after all, quite a somber moment in light of the number of people that died. And I don't know how much that came into your thinking, but it, as a viewer, I appreciated that you weren't glorifying the blast in some kind of luscious kind of 70 millimeter, you know, dripping with wonder, isn't it greatness? Because that would have seemed so out of place with the context of the material. But yeah, and I, mean, I think that was very, we're all very kind of conscious of that during the whole making the film I guess that that the thing that the whole film is about really is this horrific event that you know um, everyone would hope never needed to have happened but you know so I think that was sort of underlying everything all the time not that it really affected our decisions about how we were going to do that but I think one thing I was just thinking as you were talking that probably the fact that we shot it from a long way away, as it would have been observed by the people who were there at the time, um, tends to make it much less, it sort of glorifies it less in a way. The, the, the fact that it's a, a way, a distance away. If you put cameras like in underneath it and and in amongst it, and, and particularly, you know, in place, if, you, if you were doing a CG version of it and you could film it from anywhere you want and... And and the tendency would be to want to to put cameras in places where you couldn't possibly yeah have really luscious fluid sim type rolling yeah. kind of fireballs yeah. yeah but then yeah I feel like that's inherently almost disrespectful to the historical context of the film yeah yeah I mean there was one big shot that we that filled the screen with this just wall of fire and that was you know dozens of layers of um of shot elements and 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 other layers for the ground and the shockwave component was, was a separate element as well um, yeah was that a miniature the shockwave element or was that yeah we we made these sort of tables with wires sliding underneath a, a bed of, of dirt and sort of slid them towards the camera so we got a sort of a ripple running under the ground yeah yeah so so you you touched on this earlier but there was not a lot of difference between visual effects and practical effects um so maybe you could just talk to the relationship you had in the effects team collectively and of course with the uh dop who's you know incredibly uh central to all of this yeah yeah well um scott fisher and i worked and have worked really closely together on on the last three films for Chris and and so we discussed you know what's needed and how the best way to achieve it is. I mean, largely, 
everything that had, involves explosives or fire, Chris and, and his guys deal with pretty much. I'm not a pyrotechnician and I never have been there. So I'm quite happy to leave that in the in the um in the special effects department. Although, you know, obviously we're involved and we're um um talking about how we're going to do things and what we're going to do. Uh, um and then the um, all of the the smaller sub subatomic particles and all of those sort of little rigs and things i basically built all those myself pretty much in scott's workshop in la in the sort of couple of months leading up to pre-production and then during pre-production and then we carried on throughout the whole shoot so i had a very small team of the visual effects crew on set was really only about five people and so i was um doing working out what to build, building it, and then filming it with um, Dave Driswicki, the, the visual effects DOP. And he and I worked really closely on, and he he worked on Tenet as well, so we've worked together before. And um, he's the sort of um, the sensible one that I need in my my team because I tend to be a little bit looser and, and gung-ho, if you like, with the what's possible and then you know the the dp is always the one who's going you know pulling it back into um something that's actually usable but um and that's a sort of that combination i think which works really well i mean that and, and do you want to discuss hoyt because obviously he would have been involved as well yeah he's um he's he's involved early on and you know looking at the early tests when we were um in pre-production that that process of experimenting and filming everything digitally until we had a whole lot of things that we felt were ready for film and we had a camera test day and Hoyter um shot all of that first test and so was really involved and very involved in getting the lenses made and um essentially the the language of how we were going to approach the the film and and then throughout the the shoot we're working alongside main unit and that's partly because you know we we're only a very small unit we didn't have all the support that that we needed to be a sort of standalone film shoot um plus we have dailies at the end of every day so i would show chris what we've been shooting and get his input so but during that main unit shoot the um Chris and Hoyter are, are, are pretty much um tied up on on what they're doing and and would just drop in occasionally and see what what we're up to and kind of have some input there but um that was that process so what was the greatest challenge for you and your team well that that idea I suppose of um of coming up with what it was we were going to shoot was was like a huge challenge, but also incredibly rewarding because it was, it was, it was so free to, you know, it wasn't very specific. We want this exact thing. It wasn't like yours previous of what you were trying to produce. Yeah, that's right. It's like the opposite to, um, to having a very a strict kind of brief. It was like, you can, you can, you can come up with anything, anything you like. I have my own set of rules, which were that anything we did had to be really fast to make and, test because 
I, I didn't want to go down this sort of long build, elaborate build of you know two or three weeks just to get to a point where you could film something to discover that it was useless or didn't look good or whatever. So everything was had to be fast and relate to the subject matter and look good on camera. Um, so those were the challenges. And then I suppose another towards the end of post-production, we we had a few um, things that we were still struggling to find a really good solution for. And some of those shots took quite a long time trying lots of different things to to get to an answer that we uh, that we liked. And of course, you were doing all this through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That can't have made it that easy. I guess, was it a small sectioned off team or did you just have huge interruptions where you just couldn't work? Well, I suppose, uh, no, we didn't didn't stop shut down much actually during that shoot. It was um, very few stoppages from COVID. We, we were outdoors a lot of the time. I mean, that, that was one of, one of the biggest challenges for me was that all this this work, which would be relatively easy in a nice studio, we were we were working in easy up tents, like alongside main unit in New Mexico in the winter, and and then having to move every few days to somewhere else and set up all over again. So you can imagine that sort of classic tabletop shoot in a in a campsite in the mud and the rain and the ice and snow, and so that was a challenge in itself. I was about to ask you if you had any technical advice for yourself, if you could have gone back uh, to the beginning of the project, but am I guessing that that technical advice would have been to be less of a mobile unit? I mean, it was like a, a mash unit of visual effects or special effects. It was, it was totally that. It was crazy. And, and you know, the the poor people that I had in my crew really suffered from, you know, just just getting to the point where you could actually do something took half of the day's energy, you know, to to get everything set up and working. And, and we had days where, where we weren't able to do anything just because like we were stuck in the mud or, you know, we because we moved down to the, the Trinity test site location yep. ahead of main unit in the idea that we would, you know, have a couple of days of, of uh, I knew that main unit, what main unit were doing didn't need me. So, I thought it's great. I'll get a couple of days of setting up and we can do some things. Well, the first day we didn't get there at all because all the vehicles were just stuck in mud. And then the second day it rained more and it was windy. And um, and then we got called away to main unit because they did actually need me to do something. Um, one of the things that actually what I was called away to do was something that we did quite a lot on the shoot, which was projecting um a live a still of the actual set back onto the same set with a with a wave distortion applied to it. So we were essentially distorting the set in real time through a through a projector. So you're trying to give the illusion of a shockwave hitting by this projecting itself on itself. This was where um, Oppenheimer was was in situations where he was feeling really disturbed and yep. the background behind him started sort of um, wobbling and and sort of like a wave, a ripple effect going through the background. Well, we shot that in real time with him in front of the effect. Um, by, it was it was basically like um, camera projecting technique that we use all the time, 
but in the real world. So we were taking a still of the background behind him, yep. putting it through After Effects, a ripple effect in After Effects, and then plugging the output into a projector that was right next to the camera, and then lining that up exactly with where the still was taken from so that it exactly matched the the subject that was photographed. So the ripple effect was just moving the But would that go over over the actor or would that was no, it No, because the we put it beside the camera. Um, okay. So it would be past past yeah. so wouldn't it fall on the actor, it would fall on the background. Yeah, exactly. So we were deliberately cutting it so that it didn't hit him yeah. and he had hit the background behind him. Right. And then presumably just playing that in real time off whatever. Yeah, I mean, I was. It was just like the RAM preview out of After Effects playing. That must have. That must have been a slightly complicated lighting problem because you'd light that set, but then when you add the projector back over it, you're going to have to change all the lighting to get it back to where it was. If that makes sense, because you've got the addition of the extra lighting of the projected shot, or you wouldn't see it. Yeah, I think um, we were obviously making some adjustments on the on the amount of light that was hitting the same component. Yeah. But but we had a big bright projector, so we were able to kind of overpower the natural lighting in the set a little bit, and just enough to. And it was subtle, you know. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny because you, when one is in the cinema, okay, for a start, I was like not thinking about that. I was actually concerned about the film because I loved the film to death, and I was like, yeah. I had to bring myself out of it to remember I was meant to be watching it. But but then secondly, something like that would normally be just a post effect. Normally, because people wouldn't be willing to commit to that in camera on the grounds that if somebody wanted to change their minds later, presumably Chris, mm. that you'd be completely screwed. So my question is this, did you have that as a safety or was it like you would 100% commit to that and you weren't worried? No, 100% committed. And that's what I love about working with Chris is that he can make a decision that something's good, he wants it, he shoots it, and that's it. It's done. And he, we didn't do a safety of those shots. Yeah, because, I mean, oh, I good. applaud that. I totally yeah. applaud that. But you'd have to agree with me, right, <laughs> leaving Chris out of it for a second. There aren't yeah. many that would not want to have a safety net that eh, if we in previews the audience doesn't like it, we can go without it. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a way you're forcing yourself to not have that doubt. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... There's, um, I mean, look, I think he's one of the most significant filmmakers of our time. I totally applaud it. But I guess I say, leaving him aside for a second, there aren't yeah. many directors uh, or creative teams, even in television or wherever, that would be willing to commit that strongly. Mm. Um, and, uh, and and on location where, you know, you really don't have the pleasure of seeing it in the cut and seeing how it's kind of pacing with the other yeah. shots. And, and as well as that, actually shooting on film where you don't have a really good video split or i mean he doesn't have a split at all he doesn't record the split from the camera so he, he's relying totally on what he sees he has a tiny little um like a casio screen which does come from a split but doesn't get recorded so it's just for, so he can see framing also i i wouldn't be telling you anything that wouldn't have occurred to you in an instant which is seeing that in imax that effect is going to look quite different than it would on a Casio the size of a uh, yeah. of an iPhone, right? I mean, that's yeah. like what you can read on an iPhone is uh, or a thing that size is yeah. dramatically different than what you read on a, uh, mm. and yet it it works, right? I mean, the point, the end of the day, like he was right, it, yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, 
Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us about this, Andrew. It's great. I, as I say, I adored the film. I just thought it was so uh, magnificent. But I would be remiss if I didn't just get your comment on the fact that you ended up on one half of the Barbie Oppenheimer pop culture phenomenon. I mean, I know it's nothing about the visual effects, but just as an aside, like that must have, what point in, did it that sort of get into your consciousness that you were part of the of the most insane grassroots pop culture phenomenon we've seen in cinema in decades. Yeah, no, it was fascinating, wasn't it? I loved the, um, I loved actually being, feeling like I was slightly involved in this, uh, this sort of um, wave of enthusiasm bringing yeah. back into theatres. I mean, it was because it's really that whole post-COVID world has gradually kind of come back to normal it, it wasn't like suddenly it's all over it was like no. people have kind of continued doing the things they did so I think there's part of that people have finally gone oh yeah it's it's actually really good to go out and do things with a huge number of people and and you know experience things collectively but you're also being slightly modest because it wasn't just any film, right? It was two films that were original. They weren't sequels. They weren't, um, you know, like remakes of something. Mm, yeah. And and completely different films. This was nothing that could have been engineered by a a marketing department. This was a, you yeah. know, to so hackneyed expression to say grassroots kind of thing, but it was like there's no way you could engineer that in your wildest dreams. And yet, yeah. but when did you first hear about it? Like, was it like? obvious way out or did you just sort of suddenly wake up one day and someone were telling you about it and you were like what are you what are you talking about yeah yeah no I think it I don't know it was it was sort of percolating wasn't it for a little while and then it kind of really went off and yeah it was everywhere and you know I think everyone's just been going wow what a brilliant marketing strategy you know to to have these two completely opposite films both kind of um not playing off each other, but in a way, kind of like as a perfect little pair of completely different things to do. Oh, but, two but different also, things you know, that cinema can offer. Isn't it that, um, you know, as you're talking about them being, you know, basically they're not just another sequel. So many of the movies that are in the cinemas are just another sequel from a, the same story over and over again. And I think there's, there must be, there must be an appetite for for fresh new ideas. Yes, and you'd have to say, looking at the body of work of Christopher Nolan, it's nothing if not fresh new ideas. Almost since the first one we ever made, right? It's yeah, like, uh, yeah. but without feeling like he is deliberately trying to outdo himself with new odd ways of filmmaking. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. Look, anyway, I, I just wanted to say thanks again and. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate it, you taking time to talk to us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Andrew. And I just wanted to thank everyone, by the way, who's listening, who came up and said hi to John and I at SIDGRAPH in Los Angeles. It was just brilliant to see so many people and get so much feedback uh, on how much people have been uh, enjoying FX Guide and for, <laughs> for how long people have been enjoying FX Guide. Um, by the way, John's on holidays this week. He'll be back uh, as normal next time. But until then, I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. 
Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.